Libertà is powered by the Seneca Network. We are bi-weekly podcasts focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SubChina, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. Long story short, we're here this week with Jen Long, Managing Director for Greater China at Hype Asia. Prior to her work in venture capital, she previously led Hong Kong and China market entry for Groupon, Lululemon, and Tom's. To put this in perspective, at Lululemon, Jen built the initial retail team and showroom presence while introducing yoga as a lifestyle through 1,000-person community events across Hong Kong and China. And at Tom's, she launched the brand through retail distribution of more than 28 flagship stores and an e-commerce setup, celebrity endorsements, and grassroots shoe-giving partnerships to activate social giving as a lifestyle. Oh, and not to mention, she recently founded Wandersnap to connect creatives with families and businesses to create original content for around 58 cities in Asia. We discuss these varied career experiences and also touch on her Shanghainese culture, the critical importance of mental wellness, and a peek into the early days of Alipay. Let's listen in. So thank you, Jen, so much for coming on Ta for Ta today. And I think that we could start, if you could just tell fans and listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you're currently doing right now. Yeah, sure. So my name is Jen. I uh, spend most of my time um, out here in Hong Kong. Grew up uh, between Hong Kong and, and Canada uh, in a really Shanghainese household. So uh, I suppose all three are home and heritage to that regard. Um, currently, I am on uh, a VC team uh, that helps startups uh, expand their companies to regions around Asia, and our team uh, helps them to do the market landing work. Great. And so you've had a series of different roles over the course of your career so far, and I was hoping that you could kind of walk us back to one of the first jobs you had and what originally drew you to that and why you decided to to work there. Yeah, perhaps I've had a few different past lives, if you will, um, on the, in the career sense. Um, I've always been someone who's inherently quite curious, and, and I, I just want to learn as much as I can in the shortest amount of time. Um, and and I, I think now, in looking back, it's no surprise that perhaps in venture capital, that's the perfect configuration to be rewarded to learn, um, and in a very fast-paced environment, no less. But uh, when I was in school, I, I started off in uh, actually in engineering, um, then switched to business school. Um, then when I was in the working world, I've had uh, periods of time either in sales roles, um, in uh, social enterprise, uh, in consumer retail brands and doing store operations, uh, all the way to online tech um, and then starting my own company. So I remember when I was Perhaps just starting out in my career, someone said to me that, you know, spend your 20s and um, the first 10 years of your career really focused around collecting as many dots as possible. Um, don't judge yourself for what the dots they are. Uh, don't judge yourself for the failures and the mistakes that you do make, uh, but just collect as many dots as possible. So then um, at the end of that decade, you can look back um, and hopefully have enough dots on your canvas to draw some sort of pattern um, make some sense of who you are and what you're supposed to do as a career. And I really took that to heart and 
Um, I think that sort of sums up uh, uh, my career so far. So tell us about a dot you've had in your 20s. <laughs> uh, there were quite a few. Uh, I think um, professionally, um, perhaps one of the uh, most impactful chapter was just spending those uh, six, seven years in, in Shanghai. And, you know, in, in, in growing up in a Shanghainese household, I thought um, it, it should be more like homecoming. But to, to my surprise, um, perhaps having grown up overseas, my way of thinking, my value system, um, and, and even just my, my, my default mode of operation, um, they weren't actually that localized. So I, I too also had a time of assimilating and adapting, getting used to um, what it was like to, to, to work in Shanghai. Um, and I think in that environment, it really rewarded uh, sort of uh, at times, haste and rash decision making. There was a lot of emotionality, all things that I thought were strengths. And, and I think one really important dot there is that China is just an economy that grows so quick. So whilst those uh, ways of making decisions or behaving seem to have a positive correlation to getting things done and, and seeing results, that may not be perhaps the most healthy or the most mindful way of conducting work. And, and it took me only until leaving China, starting my own business to really learn that lesson. But, you know, you're rewarded by the intellectual stimulation, the pace of change, um, and just a pure group uh, who's really uh, outstanding and wanting to create something from nothing. Um, I really relish in, in, in that experience and having been able to meet people like that uh, when I lived up there. In the lead up into starting your own company, you worked for a series of different, you know, big name consumer facing brands. But I'm curious, how did you manage to go from one job to the next and really make sure that you felt like it was having an impact on you and that you were having an impact on the companies that you were working at? So can you just tell us, you know, chronologically where you were, what companies you're working at, and then tell us a little bit more about the impact. Yeah. So I think the first thing coming out of school, I knew at the time that if I were to succeed in business, I need to learn sales. And, you know, most business curriculum doesn't even teach that in a traditional sense. So I thought where or from whom can I learn sales uh, the best from? And at the time, this was the uh, Groupon days. And so, you know, in my mind, I thought there's nowhere else I can learn this than going door to door, especially with local businesses, diversified industry. Um, and the entrepreneur who started Groupon Hong Kong, he was known as a serial entrepreneur in town. So I thought, you know, this has to be the place. Um, and I'm really glad that I did that. Was it the most, uh, you know, as my friends took on consulting and finance jobs, um, uh, graduating out of college, there was a bit odd to then go and, and, and spend, you know, most of my time knocking on doors. But I think that training, that discipline, that pace and that hustle really laid then the foundation for me in terms of uh, how to conduct business um, and how to actually manage other teams to run at the same pace. Um, and then right around the time when Groupon went public, I thought, well, um, it's time for me to move on to the next thing to learn uh, in another fast-growing environment. And at the time, I knew I, the next skill that I wanted to hone in on was uh, how exactly do Chinese companies uh, operate and how do you influence decision-making and run teams within that context? Um, keep in mind, this is you know, probably about 10 years ago. And so uh, most people didn't know the name Alibaba. My parents didn't. I didn't really even, to be honest. But I just had the impression that if I were to learn 
uh, from a Chinese company in the tech context, Alibaba was the place to go. Um, so I was very fortunate to go there to, to, to run their international teams and their payment product, um, which is very different from what, it, what Alipay is now. But, you know, it gave me a front row seat to see the kind of uh, colleagues that I was working with, the passion that they had for the Alibaba brand. And ultimately, what we were doing was so much more than just building a business. In many ways, it was evangelizing what the Chinese economy was about. Um, a lot of the questions that we got when we went to U.S. and Europe were, you know, why should we invest in the Chinese consumers at all? And, and I found myself in this odd position to have to, you know, learn about uh, the keynote, but most importantly, to evangelize that China branding in, in the context of work, which is very unique. Um, very quickly, I felt like culturally, I didn't, um, I, 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 it was a very seniority driven company, at least at the time. And so um, I wanted to continue my learning and, and it's almost my mentality. Every time I moved on to the next role, I always reflect, did I learn the thing that I came in to learn? And if I did, what's the next skill gap that I want to hone in on um, objectively as a business person? So at that point, um, I knew I wanted to try my hands in actually going uh, completely in-house on the brand side rather than operating on a platform servicing a bunch of brands. And so Lululemon at the time was uh, a brand that we had worked with uh, at Alibaba, um, and they were looking for someone to start their brand presence uh, specifically offline in China. So I jumped at that opportunity. And, you know, I, that, for me, that role was really a, a turning point in growing into learning so much more about what it takes to perhaps run a team um, and manage cross-functional uh, functions, uh, influence and coordinate with an HQ that sits halfway around the world who may not have the best understanding of the local market. Um, all that in the name of, you know, inspiring those around us to uh, pursue an active lifestyle. Um, it was just a, a really easy and, 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 and on-brand experience with you. I truly believed in the value of what the company was promoting. Um, there was no shortage of hard work and failures. And, you know, sometimes I still think, why the heck did a publicly listed company give the reins to one of the most important markets to, you know, someone who's not even 25 yet? Um, and then if you were to ask me now, would I be so daring to, to ask for that role again? I'm not so sure. Um, but it was just with sort of almost that naiveness that, you know, I felt like with my youth and my energy and the lack of liabilities in the personal life, I, I could dedicate all my being um, to, to uh, pushing for work goals to take place, and I use that to my advantage. I have a few questions I kind of want to dig into a little bit more. You know, when you were working for Lululemon and trying to expand the footprint for the company in China, what were some of those key things that you know HQ was thinking about at the time? And did you ever feel like you had to educate or um, level up HQ to really understand what you were, were trying to do with the work that you were doing in China? Sure. So I think there were a few key layers, um, perhaps even on like uh, the, the philosophy, the value of what um, the lemon brand would bring to China at the time. I think the Vancouver folks had a way of thinking about it and um, you know, keep in mind at this point, uh, it was still odd to run in spandex, let's so run in spandex outdoors 
less so run in Sandex outdoors when the weather wasn't great and, and you're running through traffic and locals, you know, making gym view. And, and I remember when we first got started, locals would still take pictures because it was just odd. Like they couldn't understand that. Uh, why would you run if you don't have the need to, but less so you do it for pleasure. And so in that sort of environment to preach anything else or, you know, really, really inspire them to these aspirational values just wasn't appropriate. So much of the work that we did was actually quite grassroots at the time. It involved more of uh, our team doing as many workout classes in a day. And then when we do, we, we speak with the teachers, the owners, the fellow students. And it took those very one-on-one -on -one type conversations to educate them on not just what we wore, but more importantly, why we wore them and why what, the, what are the values that the brand stood for. So I think there's uh, one piece there. The other is then imagine in that sort of environment where you get taken pictures of when you're running on, on the streets in spandex, who do you hire to be in your store whereby they then can inspire the kind of lifestyle and value and goals as the, is the case with the lemon staff elsewhere in the world. Um, and we looked to, you know, traditionally in the retail staff uh, in China at the time, you're making minimum wage. Typically, you didn't get the great access to, to educational uh, channels. And so um, you end up being in the retail floor and you do that full time. And so there's a significant gap in the kind of people who were in retail versus the ones that we wanted to hire to inspire our guests to live a certain life. Um, then you add in the third layer, well, they needed to love sports, um, especially yoga. <laughs> and so where would you even go about finding these people? And what we realized was a lot of the yoga teachers at the time, they were actually entrepreneurs. Um, they gave up whatever careers that they had to go get certified, ultimately to run their own schedule and be able to teach with the flexibility across different uh, studios. But the thing is, until there was significant demand in the yoga industry, these teachers couldn't take on as much business as they wanted. So they were actually quite welcoming to pursuing other part-time opportunities, especially if, you know, we gave them an entrepreneurial setting where um, they can run their own marketing campaigns, they can recruit uh, their own customers base, and they really took part in building that brand from scratch. That's when we found these people who could then truly inspire the guests who came in, uh, but came from the community, and many of whom have never even left China or gone overseas to see what a Lululemon store looked like. So they really bought into the brand experience, surely just based on, you know, what the team there uh, held each other accountable and, and, and created the image of. Um, so when I look back at, hey, that's how we, we grew the brand and we laid the foundation, um, it, it really, it, it adds an extra special touch when I walk on the streets and I see people wear these manifesto bags um, that's quite ubiquitous in the, in the West. Every little red bag that I see on the streets in China, I think it brings back to just how raw um, the beginning was when, when we got the brand going. That's really interesting and such a, a great anecdote. I um, I also was curious, you know, I didn't know in some of the pre-conversations that we had that you were working with the payment function when you were at Alibaba. And I'm curious from your perspective, from the time that you were working there to now seeing, you know, how omnipresent Alipay is across China, um, what you think of its evolution um, and if you kind of saw the glimmer of some of the, that growth 
when you were working there? Yeah, I think one of my biggest surprises was, you know, when I when I joined a company like Alibaba, my own checklist was just to learn how to influence and operate teams within a Chinese organization. That that was my whole agenda. But when I went in and I realized that more of my work had to do with influencing others and their perception in China, it almost bit on too much more than what I could chew on. Uh, where, you know, I, my team would fly to New York, we'd go to London, we'd go to uh, speak with various executives and VPs of um, my massive consumer brands. And, and at the time, they were exploring, well, how should I do my uh, China strategy, specifically my e-com strategy, to take advantage of the potential scale? And most of these meetings, you know, uh, we'd be sitting in there and sharing GDP figures. We'd uh, comment on what uh, tax policies or free trade zone policies that the country was welcoming overseas brands to invest in. How do you go about even setting up an entity, building out your distribution center logistics, all of which were not really training that we had in the role, but just things that we had to get expert in and get good at and, and then to be able to speak on behalf of. Um, you know, almost the trade commission to say, hey, this is why you should come and do your business in China. Um, I didn't expect that. And to fast forward, you know, 10 years later, now Alibaba is a household name. Most brands and business owners fly to Hangzhou to knock on Alibaba's store to pray and hope that they would give some bit of unique traffic to their uh, online store operation. And I think that flipped completely in the 180 and being having been able to experience it to me, was a first-hand experience of just what that China pace feels like. You can read through it in the publication. You can watch videos about it online. But when I measure just what the conversations were like then versus what the conversations are now in executive flyover, it's completely night and day. Um, I don't think I knew what I was up for or in for when I was there then, but I'm very grateful to have had that experience in order to benchmark that against you know, the conversations that I see now. Yeah. So let's uh, jump back to where you were in this progression. So you were working at Lululemon and then what was next? Yeah. At Lulu, by the time when, and when I decided to move on, I thought I had some grasp of um, offline uh, store management and, and, and how to operate a team and build the business from scratch in China. Um, but something in me yearned for, um, uh, something of a higher purpose. And so uh, right around uh, the, this period, I spent uh, uh, some significant time in Nepal um, and I was photographing in these uh, rural agricultural communities to tell stories of women um, and how they were supporting each other. And I remember significantly that uh, the homestay that I was in, um, I couldn't really communicate with the host parents. And so I spent most nights just in my room um, trying to, to fidget or read or do something in order to fall asleep in, in the 35 degree heat. And I began counting the, the Nepali rupiah, the rupees, um, every night, the local currency. And what I realized was I never spent more than $3 US a day max. And that would have already, you know, got me uh, curry meals, uh, clean bottles of water, um, some snacks in the field. And I thought, who then am I, am I to spend my career coaching my team to sell $100 stretchy pants when for every pair that we sold, that's 30, 33 kids ac- access to clean food and clean water. Mm. And, and, and that called on the sense of 
guilt, but also responsibility. You know, over the years I learned, I don't, I don't mean to at all impose that value set on anybody because we all uh, have our own North Star and we all, all make our own decisions. But my own North Star guided that, you know, I just, I couldn't, I, that math didn't make sense and I couldn't not do anything. And so when I went back to Shanghai, I thought, well, is there something that I can leverage everything that I've done in terms of building brands, in terms of team management um, and, and setting up business, but to do so in a much more socially meaningful way. And it was almost serendipity that as I was inquiring these questions, um, the brand Toms came by and they were looking for someone to build up the offline and online presence and launch the brand into China all over again. Um, so I jumped at the, the opportunity um, and, and I also got to learn, you know, and in those days, what the development world in China looks like and how perhaps we could be the brand that leveraged the consumer powers of how much people spend in stores and online in order to ultimately do good and give back also domestically. Um, within those two years, we, 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 we did a lot. Uh, we tried to also do a mainstream dialogue around, you know, can we leverage celebrity power, uh, publication reach to actually start a conversation about social enterprise. Um, I think perhaps then, um, you know, if I were to be honest, perhaps not all purchases and transactions took place because consumers felt driven by the why, as it is the case, I think, for Tom's in the U.S. and, and in the West. Um, but it definitely was a conversation starter. And we grouped together these ecosystem of entrepreneurs, local NGOs, uh, thought leaders who are all in this space in order to inspire some small niche of the, de the demographic to care about how they're purchasing and why they're purchasing. Um, and I think that was a really meaningful uh, experience in, in being able to try something different. Um, in a very consumer-centric market. Really interesting. And so what do you think were some of the biggest challenges while working on Wondersnap? Yeah, so moving from Tom's, I naively thought, you know, well, now that I've done all this, I surely am ready to go and do my own thing. <laughs> and, and and of course I can do it. I know what to do. I, 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 I have all the tools and market know-hows and resources. And I think it was in that naiveness that one would then jump in and endeavor in, in starting something of your own. But it's also in that naiveness where you make some pretty serious mistakes. And perhaps if I were to look back, um, the, the biggest lesson that I took away was really, um, it's very different to run a team or an, motivate a team when you have the corporate backings of resources and salaries in, in, in training versus that of when you're running a really lean team where most people probably took a pay cut um, and they're really there committed because of this goal and this vision uh, that, that you know the team shares and how you manage that and maintain that motivation in the team, the founders really need to have that at the forefront and take care of that almost as a foremost priority, much more than, you know, and, and I, I did perhaps a, a running a corporate team. I think that's one. The other piece mm. is I wish I was wise enough to ask myself, do I have the mental fortitude um, required to sustain and thrive in this journey? Um, and I think the biggest difference was in, in the corporate realm, even if there were tough days and, and, and surely there were, 
at the end of the day, I don't have to worry about where my paycheck was coming from. As long as I shut my phone off at the end of the day, I wake up early in the morning, I try all over again, the day set resets itself. When it was your own venture, every waking minute and even minutes where you're trying to go to bed is so obsessive about thinking about, you know, what more can I do? How else can I do it? Who else can I talk to? Um, what more can I try? How can I fix that problem? How can I prevent that problem? Mm. You just, you, you can't shut. And you don't also have the security of, you know, a paycheck. Um, it's all about, I didn't really pay myself until um, I made sure that we had enough funding to keep the business going. And that adds an extra layer of uh, logistical stress. And so when all that is, is at, the, at the core and then you add in the extra stimuli of, you know, competitors coming in or um, things costing much more than you expected or campaigns that you're really relying on just not turning off results, then it's just constant um, stressors testing your limit. And the thing is, over the years, what I learned is entrepreneurs who succeed are the ones who, in times of extreme stress, they actually think that's fun. They actually think that that's the high, the adrenaline of why they will always choose to be an entrepreneur rather than working for somebody else. But in my case, I think in times of extreme stress, it really tested my own um, bandwidth. It tested my own distress tolerance mm. skills I, or the lack thereof. Um, I didn't realize how, you know, perhaps I, I, I didn't have the mental health toolkit um, to even weather the kind of journey that was ahead. And so now when I, when in my line of work, when I meet founders, I always try to observe do they have the right support systems? Are they mentally aware, emotionally aware? Do they have that fortitude up in the head to, to weather the journey more so than, you know, what is the business model? Um, do they have the right experience? Because all those things you can acquire and learn. Uh, but I think mental fortitude, you should just have that in your back pocket before you ever uh, choose to endeavor in arguably one of the hardest careers there is, which is entrepreneurship. So would you say that, was the biggest difference that you found in terms of being, uh, you know, an employee at a larger company versus being in the founder role is really um, the sense of backing and the difference in terms of mindset and the way that you just have to fundamentally approach your work. Yeah. And put it this way, I think to well, a lot of entrepreneurs would agree, you would hit rock bottom at some point being an entrepreneur. Um, because of all those ingredients mentioned. And if you don't, then that's great, you know, then, then then keep on. But most entrepreneurs would have hit rock bottom at some point in their health and their personal life during that journey. But you rarely hear people who hit rock bottom while on payroll. Um, and then you might be demotivated, you might be frustrated, you might feel um, very bored and lack of direction. And all those sentiments are, uh, you know, they, they weren't changed, don't get me wrong hitting rock bottom when you feel like you really have no more one penny to even spend on anything. That That's a very different circumstance. And the point is some people thrive and choose to always exist in those circumstances because that's when they do their best work um, versus those who would feel burnt or exhausted. Um, and, and those are perhaps not the right people to consider um, a path in entrepreneurship despite whatever social media and mainstream media painted as a picture of 
Um, it just really is sheer hard work. And I think uh, it combines a lot in, in mental fortitude. So how did you actually end up rolling off or exiting Wandersnap? Yeah, it's, it's almost, you know, I, I, I don't pretend like I have the foresight to think, oh, I plan to, to do that in three years. And so come around month 34, I was ready to execute the plan, put it together and put it into motion. Um, it was a bit of pull and push, um, to be quite frank, that uh, right around when we looked to transition, um, my my personal health was already at, at, at its abyss, really. And and I and those same questions I asked myself, how can I possibly create the best work and support the team or even compete, really, um, when mm-hmm. I'm not at the best version of myself physically and mentally? And there's nothing, you know, or perhaps there were periods of time when the ego really prevented me from asking myself those questions. Um, and it's easy to mistake uh, perseverance for that blind stubbornness. Um, you know, should you really do something and persist because you've evaluated objectively that you ha- you're in the right position to, or are you just persisting because you have this blind stubbornness telling yourself that uh, I-, I can't dare to give up. I, I can't lose face in-, in-, in stopping to try now. And once I grappled with those questions and perhaps made peace with what was ego, what wasn't. Um, then I was in the place of looking through, um, studying what competitors were doing. And a lot of that was just jumping on literally conversations and phone calls and meetings with direct competitor founders. And without ego, just asking, hey, uh, I'm thinking of transitioning my business. Um, would you be able to share how your team is doing? And to my surprise, of course, you have some people who would be defensive and rightfully so. Mm. But most founders jump at the opportunity of being able to speak to someone who just weathered the same pain or the same crap. Um, they would say, oh, my gosh, you also had trouble with that. We have that, too. We thought we were the only team that couldn't figure that out. But they'd say, wow, I had no idea that, you know, your cost of acquisition can be so low because we pay ours so high. And only when you speak with teams and founders who genuinely are doing the same exact thing as you are just in a different geography there was some sort of camaraderie almost like this shared communal pain that was now finally understood in a way that other entrepreneurs in other segments or your friends and families could never really truly grasp a hold of so I quite enjoyed that experience um, it was almost therapeutic to be able to share and and you know once I, I started looking at others numbers to me objectively uh, it just made sense to move on. Um, we were getting out-competed. Uh, there were teams who were much more efficient with how they were using their resources, um, and, and, and it was time to move on. And so I think this – you are a really big advocate um, about mental wellness for founders of startups. And mm-hmm. do you think that your personal experiences really influenced your perspective? And now – we haven't even really, and we'll talk a little bit more about your current role um, in VC. How does that infuse the way you think about companies now and founders now? Yeah, I think it just all comes down to, you know, can you do your best work when you're not your best self? And and I think nine out of time, 10 times, maybe it's no. Um, if luck were on your side, perhaps, but then the work became, the, the, the inquiry should really be, how can you become your best self? So then, you can do your best work and then even like show up for your team 
and, and support them as best as you can. And a lot of that, you know, I guess perhaps it depends also on your family context, the parenting, the tools and environment to which they uh, pass to you. And I didn't grow up in an environment where those tools and resources became obvious. And so it really took to going through therapy and coaching and to learn just fundamentally, wow, you can actually tolerate the stress via this way, or you can take care of yourself via that way. Uh, or the importance of a support network. And, and support networks can take very many different shapes. Maybe you have one for women in business. Maybe you have one for founders. Maybe you have one for people in your industry. Maybe you have one in friends and family. It can take so many different configurations to even put together your toolkit. And then once you have this toolkit solid, only then do you go and start a business because every step along that journey, you're going to need to tap into that toolkit. And if you're only building that toolkit as you're embarking on that journey, it's just too much stress and work, I think, for, for most people to endure. Now, of course, there are founders who don't function like that, and, and they're very much um, self-sufficient. They're, they're quite good on tolerating the stress on their own. Then kudos to them, too. Um, I just wasn't one of those people. And so um, it took to almost completely collapsing to relearning that. And so now once that toolkit is there, whether someone chooses to become a founder or an executive or running an NGO, that's besides the point. I think it's, it's, it's having had that toolkit in order to do your best work. Um, and then the cycle sort of perpetuates from there. Um, now, as we do our work with, you know, with companies uh, in the venture capital space, um, of course, it's perhaps not the first thing we look for. Um, the business still needs to have scale, uh, right market economics. The founder should have some experience or built a team with experience and all those things still stand. But I do observe via lens of does the founder have the mental uh, fortitude for the longevity game? Uh, most companies we invest in, we don't, we don't look to work with them only for a year or two years. We want to see them through um, five to 10 years. And to be able to endure the challenges and the twists and the turns and the changeover in, in teams, that person needs to be the constant source of strength. And that begins and ends with how that person takes care of him or herself as well personally. Um, and I really wish that, you know, perhaps there's more resource out there or more advocacy and that it's okay. If there's anyone who needs help and needs to talk about the stress and work through them in a healthy manner. I think people who choose the pain of entrepreneurship should be the first to support one another um, because it's a lonely road and 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 then there's nothing shameful about uh, having a community to lean on in order to weather through those storms for the long jacket, uh, the long haul of it. So well said and great advice for anyone that is looking to do anything entrepreneurial on their own. So thank you so much for sharing your perspective and opinion on that. I actually want to ask a little bit more about your role as a growth advisor at Carousel and um, what other things are you doing right now? And are you focused primarily in Hong Kong? Are you focused around Asia? Uh, what type of companies are you looking at? What are you excited about? Yeah, so our team's called Hype Asia, and uh, most of the partners came from having been GMs and executives for big companies launching launching into Asia before. 
so amongst us, we have um, GMs for Airbnb, WeWork, Uber, um, et cetera. And so uh, from our all of our collective experiences, we know there's a very specific way in or a set of questions that you should consider for as you launch your uh, company into Asia, whether that's from Singapore to China, from uh, England into China, or from U.S. into Korea. Um, it's the same inquiry or the same discipline uh, of how to think about building a team, growing supply, growing demand, and then ultimately launching and maintaining um, your market competitiveness in a new Asian market. And so we thought, well, instead of doing that as employees for more companies, why don't we uh, support and work with founders of high growth companies who really need that as a service and typically need that as a service on a time crunch? So these are not teams who have, you know, a couple of quarters to see results. They want to see delivery within one quarter and, and, and as a way to be able to up the valuation of their company, to be able to tell a story to fundraise for more funding or to show traction and results uh, from the funding round that they just closed. And so we built a team between uh, in Seoul, in Shanghai, Hong Kong, Singapore and Malaysia in order to be able to do this kind of very intense work. Um, we typically work with teams and founders uh, post A and B rounds, um, and they they really need to grow in Asia uh, as a as a as a growth story to prove some results. Um, some of the companies that uh, I currently represent, um, there's one that's uh, Carousel, where we uh, help set up uh, from Singapore to Hong Kong. Um, there is a company called Bakedy where um, we are growing their co-baking retail concept uh, from Hong Kong to the rest of Asia. Um, and then there's also an insurance tech product uh, that we're launching into Hong Kong from uh, China. Um, so all of these, are, as a team, we're quite industry agnostic. And so I think the difference is that our team uh, is paid to learn and to learn in a very quick pace and demanding environment that ultimately we need to deliver results back to the founders. And I think it's in this type of environment where it attracts a certain kind of person whom we thrive in and, and, and really enjoy this kind of high intensity work. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I look to being able to go to work to learn as the biggest luxury. Um, and every day we get to learn about different industries. And so um, I, I think the team finds it very rewarding and meaningful. Yeah, that's, that's really incredible. And, so exciting probably to be on that leading edge of the curve and really seeing what is coming in the pipeline and coming to to markets uh, and really being able to spot those trends and, and act on it. So that's very exciting. I do think that when we were talking about the workplace, um, there was something that there was this quote that was kind of really left with me where you said, you sometimes feel like you have to balance getting the job done with your empathy muscles and specifically mm. related to women in the workplace. And I was hoping that you could mm. speak to that, add some nuance to it, explain um, to listeners what you mean by that. Yeah, by no means do I feel like I have this figured out at all. I think it's <laughs> work in progress and practice um, for myself. But, you know, and perhaps it also correlated to that rush of living in Shanghai during a fast-growing environment. As I said, the, the pace is so quick. And so your rashness or the emotionality in, in making decisions was rewarded or correlated then to seeing things done or results. And I think in particular, the, the, the rhetoric of like women in business was that 
you had to be tough. You had to stand your own ground. You had to learn to say no. Um, and you have to almost man up in such a way to be able to be invited to boys club type situations in order to have a seat at the table and be respected. Or at least those are the thematics of how I grew up and how I was told um, to have to behave in order to have the kind of career that I did in my 20s. And over time, I realized that that rashness, that emotionality, um, it oftentimes meant not considering for everybody's point of view. And as a result, we're actually doing a disjustice to like the strength of what it means to be a woman. To be woman is to be able to uh, understand where all the resources gather from, being natural gatherers. Um, and we consider all sides of perspectives. And ultimately, um, we are more empathetic. And, and that should actually be a strength. And it doesn't mean, you know, I, I think perhaps when I was younger, I thought, well, but for me to be empathetic and to consider all points of view and stakeholders, that means I have no stance of my own and I'm a pushover. But in reality, that's not the case because you can pursue your own position, but you can piss off a bunch of people whom you actually need their support in order to push your agenda. So that's equally unproductive. Um, less so, you know, you probably create a conflict, there's probably tension, um, things that are just a bit icky and, and no one likes to be around. Versus perhaps being a woman in, in leadership or a woman in business, could it be where empathy is your strongest strength? Um, you can still pursue your own perspective or, or drive a team goal, you arrive at that not because you have some preconception of what it should be, but rather you've empathetically considered for all people's perspectives and then arrived at a conclusion that you think uh, suits the greater, uh, the greatest good. Um, I think women also naturally do this better than men in the workplace. And so um, how you can then use that as your strength to relate to your teams better, to other people's teams better, um, to manage stakeholders or spots. Uh, red flags, people about to quit or resign or demotivate uh, much earlier. I think those are actually all skill sets and women are best suited to be able to do that if we're aware um, and we don't beat ourselves up to, you know, need to man up or toughen up in order to have a seat at the table. Yeah, that is incredibly uh, resonant with me. I think that it's a balance and it's really individually trying to figure out what that means and how to navigate that mm. in the very specific context that you're in. Um, mm. So that that's really resonant with me. And I know you've kind of been giving little tidbits of advice throughout this whole conversation, but I'm curious if there's been a piece of advice that someone gave you previously um, earlier on in your career that you found yourself giving to others? Perhaps one that I've been recently very present to, actually, um, uh, was a, a piece of advice that uh, we learned in a Tibetan uh, a Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist retreat. And uh, this monk had mentioned that ego is a source of all suffering and where there is no you there is no suffering and no, there's no pain. And perhaps he, he said this in much more of a, a context of humanity and, and personal growth and, and, and just sort of his journey through life. But when I apply that to the workplace, um, you know, I, I humor in the fact that even how we show up to a job interview in order to present who we are, 
that CV, that whole piece of paper, or in some cases, a stack of paper, is all ego. It's all about whom you are, what you did, where you came from, where you went to school, what you accomplished, mm. um, what team you ran, and how much, how, how short of an amount of time that you did it in and where you did it. That, that, that one pager is all ego. And I think where that, can, that quote or that thought can be applied into the workplace is that it's one thing to say you're a team player. It's another to really live into those values. And even when the lights are turned off, when there's no CVs to be written, when there's no press clippings to be done, when there's no, you know, uh, uh, milestones to need to glorify externally on social media, do we still show up genuinely as a team player to pursue a team goal and the company vision? Um, and, and when you can uh, cherish and almost step into that perspective, then all these grievances around, you know, am I respected? Is my work uh, appreciate it? Um, am I seen enough? Um, will I get a promotion? Will I get a raise? Um, am I, am I, am I a, a valued player of, of the team? All those starts with the ego and the I, and then therefore the suffering uh, that comes with it. But to be able to genuinely be part of a team and live into those values, even when the lights are turned off, I think that's when it becomes really powerful and, and teams can come together and do really great work. Obviously, it's easier said than done and still trying to practice. Um, but I feel like that, to me, perhaps as I left my 20s behind, um, is something that's been really present uh, as of late. What great advice, what wise advice. And I can tell it's definitely something you've been ruminating on yourself and figuring out how to to take that and apply that into your life. And I think hearing that from such a personal perspective is incredibly helpful. And so... With that, I would love to just thank you for the time being so generous to come speak. And I hope that listeners enjoy this as much as I did. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I really appreciate the time and hope uh, uh, each one of us can walk away with something to practice. Um, that's, all, that's all that really matters. Great. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today. Ta for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Quo for co-producing and Jason McRonald for editing. Also make sure to check out the other great podcasts on the Seneca Network. I always enjoy listening in to the other feeds. And if you'd like to contact Ta for Ta for questions, comments, general musings, we can be reached at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Also keep an eye out for our upcoming Twitter page, which we hope to engage more with listeners and subscribers and really engage the Q&D around the types of comments and discussions that we're having. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.